If you grab your Bible and uh, turn to the book of Jonah, we're going to uh, be in Jonah chapter 2, the last verse of chapter 1 and, and the, the balance of chapter 2 this week. Um, we will uh, take two more weeks in Jonah. We're going to take a, 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 a break next week and have um, Pastor Freddie Parker come and speak to us um, and encourage us in our dedication to missions and, and sharing the gospel throughout the world. And so, um, just to give you an overview of, of what is coming your direction in the next couple of weeks, we're going to read the Word of God and then ask Him to bless its proclamation as we, uh, as we study together. So, uh, picking up in Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, the Scriptures say, And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. There is something particularly wonderful about that last verse. Let's pray as we turn to God's Word. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your Word. We thank you that when we read your Word, it is not only humans created in your image, reading the words written by another human being who is created in your image, Lord. But the scriptures say that every word is breathed out by you. And so we believe that every word on these pages has your very life behind it. It has the power of the Holy Spirit written within it, Lord. And this power is the power to strengthen the soul and to give life and to teach and to sift error from truth in our lives. Lord, we thank you for giving us this resource. You've not trusted us to our own devices. You've not left us abandoned without a clear direction in this world, Lord. You've given us your word, which reads us as we read it. And so we pray, Father, that Though at times it may be sharp and pierce us, cut us, offend us, hurt our feelings, 
We thank you because we believe just as a good surgeon continues to do surgery until all the infection is out. We believe that your word purifies us from sin. It renews our mind. It removes what is old and implants instead what is new, that we might live for your glory. And so we pray that we'd be strengthened now, that our hearts and minds would be emboldened, and that we would be encouraged in our inner man by what we hear. Father, change us, we pray, as we hear the word. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Well, as we turn to the book of Jonah and this passage, we run across what many believe is the problem of the book of Jonah, um, a, a, a book which we, which we cannot possibly take on its face because of, of things written in it. Uh, it must be some kind of parable. It can't possibly have this kind of uh, the historical meaning that many in earlier unenlightened days would have believed that it was advancing. Uh, I'll, I'll make this argument. I believe that the problem of the book of Jonah, the chief thing that it was written to address, actually shows up in chapters 3 and 4, which we'll get to in just two weeks. Um, but there is this intellectual problem which confronts us in the book of Jonah. Uh, and there are questions which rise up in us. Uh, I'd like to answer two questions and then turn to the majority of, of what I want to say this morning. Um, let me quickly say, though, I love, I love to get questions from you. Somebody emailed me earlier this week and asked a question about the previous text. Why, if Jonah had created this scene, had created this problem for these sailors, why did he have them throw him out of the boat? Why didn't he jump? Because um, I had said last week that, that he put their lives at risk. He, he, he got on this boat. He was supposed to be sailing one direction, or walking rather, one direction and heading to Nineveh because God commanded him to go there. And instead, he gets in the boat and sails to Tarshish and the storm comes and everybody's going to be destroyed and everybody's trying to figure out what's wrong. And Jonah finally identifies that he is the problem. This all takes place in chapter one. And Jonah then says, throw me overboard in the, the, the waves and the violence will stop and you'll be saved. And so they pick him up and they throw him overboard and then they pray, God, don't hold us guilty for shedding innocent blood. So here's the question, why didn't Jonah jump? Um, I, think, I don't think the answer is necessarily simple. And the answer that I'm going to give right now might not be correct. This is my best attempt at one. Um, look at what verse 11 says. The question of the sailors to Jonah is, what shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? Their question is, what can we do? Give us something to do. Help us to solve this problem. Jonah, a prophet who speaks for the Lord, then says, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Their prayer, then, is don't let us perish for what we've just done. Because if you look at the tail end of the verse, it says that we have done as it pleased you. I do think there is a greater story here, though. And that's an act of faith. What is it that we are called to do in the Christian life? To save ourselves, to bring about the salvation of our souls. 
How is it that we bring life being lost? I'm getting into the, the balance of the sermon here, so I'm just, you know, just expect the, the, the map to be twisty today because I'm, I'm, I'm preaching like my third point right now. Um, we are lost in sin. We are separated from God. The Bible teaches us that we have no life in ourselves, that we can do nothing to please God because our, our sin, the inner uh, defilement of our soul and the, and the sinful things that we've done have created a wide separation. And so what God does, he does what we cannot do. He sends Christ in human flesh, uh, the, 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 the divine God, clothed in human flesh, comes to earth, lives a perfect righteous life, goes to the cross. God pours his wrath out on this innocent man in our place. The question then is, what then do we do to bring about our salvation? And the answer is, absolutely nothing. God does it all. We are simply called to believe it. I think there may be an analogy here that they say, what must we do to be saved? And Jonah then calls them to do something that requires that they believe in the gracious character of God. They pick him up, they toss him in, and then the wave stops. They had to take a risk. They had to trust. They had to trust that God would do what he said he did. And as believers, as Christians, when we put our faith and trust, we are believing in the future grace of God when he comes and raises us from the dead, that he will do what he promises to do. We trust each and every day. So that's a simple answer for why didn't Jonah jump. Maybe it's complex. I, I don't know. Um, if you come up with a better answer, I would love to hear it because I don't, I don't think that's necessarily the last word. But here's the big question that we hit as we come to this text. What is the deal with this fish? Is this fish real? You have many people out there uh, in the world who are critical of the Bible, who look at the Bible and say this is obvious evidence that the Bible is not true and is not real. And they will uh, appeal to the original fish story, you know, the story of the great big fish, that, that this could not possibly have happened. And therefore, we ought to look at the word, the whole word, with skepticism because this could not possibly happen. So the question uh, is, is this fish real? Well, I've got, I've got three, three, three parts to the answer to this question. One is that the Bible gives us no reason to think that it's not real. We're, we're not, there's, there's not like any portion of the book where suddenly you get this feeling like, doo -doo 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 -doo, like now we're, we're, we're going to the parable part of the book. This is the story fairy tale version. Like he fell into a dream like Tevye and Fiddler on the Roof and had this like, you know, vision. This, that's not what's, there's no, there's no wall like you're now entering fairy tale land in, in the story that we eventually emerge from. Um, so, so Jonah doesn't give us any indication in the book that it isn't real. Second, we may have a bigger problem if it wasn't real, and that's that Jesus treated this event like it was very real. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, Jesus says this, just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man, that's Jesus speaking of himself, be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus says, just like Jonah was in the belly of the whale for three days, I am going to be in a tomb for three days, and then I'll be raised up. Jesus obviously thinks that this really happened, that this fish was real. And if we are to believe that all the things that Jesus spoke of are true, then this must be true as well. But let me approach this 
from a scientific point of view or a naturalistic point of view for just a few moments. Um, there's no reason why this couldn't really happen. Now you may know something about whales, right? Whales all have these big, long, flat teeth, right? They've basically got like a great big filter, like a, like a grill, like, um, you know, the front of a car in, in their mouth. And what they do when they open their mouth is they open their mouth up and they suck in water and they filter out the little tiny things that they eat, krill, and then they eat that and then they expel the water. But that's how they eat. And so many people say a man could not make it into the belly of a whale because all whales have baleen. Those are those big flat teeth. Aha! Do all whales actually have it? There is one whale that has a large open mouth with these cool teeth that go right up into the top of his mouth. They, they all fit perfectly neatly and these are called sperm whales. Okay? Now, is it possible that this could have been a sperm whale? They are indigenous to many oceans including the Mediterranean Sea, which is where this happens. If you can look it up on Wikipedia, it is there in all its glory. Could a man actually survive? Very, very interesting. A man by the name of Ambrose John Wilson wrote in the Princeton Theological Review, this is in 1927, he mentions that a member of the crew of a whaling ship in the vicinity of the Falkland Islands was swallowed by a large sperm whale which had been harpooned. His boat had been tipped over by the lash of its tail. The whale was fighting back against the boat. The whale was killed and dissected. And on the third day, the missing sailor was found inside the stomach of the animal doubled up and unconscious. A bath of seawater soon revived him, but the skin of his face, neck, and hands, exposed as it had been to the action of the gastric juice, was bleached to a death-like whiteness and never recovered its natural appearance. Otherwise, his health was not affected by this terrible ordeal. <laughs> you know, it only has to happen once for it to be possible, right? I mean, people may say that's impossible, and that's like a perfect chance to create a video to put on YouTube of, look, I just did this impossible thing. It doesn't have to be any other fish that ever existed before. God could create a fish out of nowhere that could swallow Noah. We believe, folks, that God spoke to a man in the desert and told him that he would send the Savior of the world through his lineage. And he believed it and moved. That's Abraham. We believe that God created the world in seven days. We believe that a man came from God in the form of a human man and took all the sin of the world upon himself and died for our sins and then was raised again on the third day. God, this God, can make a fish to swallow a man. And there are fish that could swallow men. Uh, let's not view this as some impossible intellectual obstacle that we cannot overcome. Those two questions are two troubling things from the book that we are very unlikely to face in our lives. If you are ever swallowed almost by a whale, hope that it is 
a sperm whale, perhaps you, you, you will survive. Um, the likelihood of you needing to be thrown over to calm a storm is very small. Uh, but there are four principles that we can draw out of Jonah chapter 2, which will definitely occur in your life. And so I want to take some time and look at them. The first principle is this, that Jonah needed salvation from a peril which he created. Jonah ran away. He left the voice of God. He fled from the will of God. He tried to escape from the presence of God, and he wound up in a mess of his own creation. I can remember as a child being sent upstairs to clean my room. My father would send me upstairs, probably because my mother said, that's it, I can't take it anymore, he's got to clean his room, and I would go in there and I would open up the door, you know, and opening the door would be pushing back the door. Uh, there's all this stuff piled up behind it, you know, uh, and it was not a thin mess, like the floor was just covered with Legos, you know, that could all be swept up. And it was a thick mess. It was like socks and pens and comic books and Legos and all kinds of stuff and tinker toys and erector set kind of stuff that all needed to be separated. And, and I would go in there and just be totally overwhelmed by it. I can't clean this up. How can I, you know, and I'd start to walk around my room and I'd step on a sharp Lego and fall over and whack my head on another toy, you know, and I'd be like, I can't fix this. I'd created the mess, though, that I could now not deliver myself from. Jonah is in a very similar situation. If you look at the structure of this poem, the way that it's written, he has been thrown overboard, and now his experience is that he has hit the water, and he is sinking. He's drowning. He's being eaten by a fish. He's sloshing around in the belly of a whale. Look at what he says in, in verse 1. He says, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried. I am trapped inside of this whale, and I'm calling out to the Lord. How am I in this situation? He says in verse 3, you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. I'm far from land, and there is, there is no land around me. I am in the midst of the water. The flood surrounded me. We're not talking, you know, like he's just kind of floating around in the six-foot section of the swimming pool. He, he has no idea where he is. All your waves and your billows have passed over me. He's getting pounded by the surf. I don't think he knew how to swim. Verse 5 says, The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. He begins to sink into the water. Weeds were wrapped about my head. He's flailing around and thrashing and weeds are getting tangled around his arms and around his neck and he's going down, down into the sea to what he believes are the roots of the mountains. He sees the, 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 the end of his life coming about and he sees, he envisions it as bars closing him in. He says in verse 6, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. His life, he describes it in verse 7, is fainting away. This is not just a physical difficulty, okay? He is in this situation because he fled the will of God. He ran away. He did exactly the opposite of what God wanted to, him to. And so now he's in a physical place of punishment. But he realizes this is also a spiritual problem. Look at what he says in verse 4. Then I said, right, he's sinking into the ocean. 
I am driven away from your sight. As if God has banished him. Look at what he says in verse 6. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. He says, I am out of fellowship with God and, and the gates are closing in on me. I'm going to be imprisoned here, trapped far from God. He created the rift that justified this separation and difficulty which came upon him from God. Why did he run away? I believe that Jonah thought perhaps that he had better things to do. He had a better plan for his life. He looked at God's will. God said, I want to use you to preach a message of judgment to the dreadful Ninevites, these wicked people. And he said, I, I don't like your will. I don't want to do that. That's inconvenient. It's time-consuming. Those, those people are troublesome and wicked, and, and I might get hurt. But the truth is that Jonah ran away. His running away is more than just not wanting to do God's will. Jonah ran away for the same reason that we run away from God and that we refuse to do the things that he calls us to. And the, the reason that we all go astray is that our hearts are not just set on other things. Our hearts are wicked. Our condition may be less watery than Jonah's, but it is no less grave. Ephesians chapter 2 describes our condition this way. Paul speaks of all humanity, and he says, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience. He's describing the influence of the devil here. Among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. What is Paul saying here? He's making two major points. One is that our sins and our trespasses have put us in a condition before God that we could call death. We are dead in our sins. There's no improving on death. The second thing is he says in this condition, verse 3, that we are by nature children of wrath. If you are by your nature an American, you are a citizen of this country, you are entitled to certain rights. And if you are not, you are not entitled to those rights in this country. And in the economy of God, if we are considered, if we are counted as children of wrath, then that means that we are deserving and should expect the wrath of God upon ourselves. Our hearts are not just prone to mistake. They're not just prone to wander. We don't face difficulty in following God's will. We don't like God's will. We hate God's will because something is wrong with the heart. Jeremiah 17.9 says this. The heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? 
I meet with a gentleman named Dave Schroen to study the Bible, and my buddy Dave uh, always points to this verse, and, and, and in his translation it reads, the heart is deceitful above all things and is desperately wicked. And I said to him, my translation says sick, and he says, look, if you go look it up and determine if it's sick or wicked, he said, if I'm wrong, don't tell me. I don't want to know. I love, I love Dave for that. He, he's like, I like the way this verse reads. And so I, I show up with him with a printout of some study that I've done. And I say, I've got good news and I've got bad news. And he said, I said, don't tell me. So I slap it down on the table and I said, every other occurrence of this word means sick. There's a, a king in the book of Isaiah who is sick to the point of death. This is the problem with the human heart. Dave was upset. He's like, you ruined it for me. I said, listen, the sickness of the heart, when you look at all the occurrences of this word throughout the Bible, is a sickness from which you cannot recover, apart from supernatural intervention. And the sickness of the heart leads to wickedness. So both translations get to the point. The point is not whether our heart is sick and we need medication or our hearts are wicked and we need correction. The problem is that we are in seriously grave condition. This is a fundamental truth about the Bible that we must believe. We must embrace it if we are going to be true to the word. Our problem is our sin, not just acts of defiance against God. It's not just, I told a lie. It's not just, I, I, don't, I don't want to obey God. Our problem is our internal culture of rebellion against God, our fallenness, our willful resentment of God's creator rights over us and his divine, sovereign right to tell us this is the way that you should live and that our hearts are set completely in the opposite direction. Our problems stem from our sin, not our ignorance. They stem from our sin, not our mistakes, although we make mistakes because we are sinful. Our problems are sin, not a lack of positive energy. Sin, not a lack of loving community or poor parenting. You look at the implications of what Jonah sees surrounding himself, and he sees that he is completely cut off from God and headed for hell. He is pounded by waves. The waters are closing in. The weeds are wrapping around him. He is drowning. He is fainting. He is proclaiming the reality of a life permanently lived under the frown of God. And in that sense, he is describing the whole human condition. Eternal separation from the goodness of God, facing only judgment. And that's the bad news. The second thing that we can see here is good news. God's purpose in our circumstances is to display his glorious good character and to rescue and restore. What is the purpose of discipline? Is the purpose of discipline to punish? I had a swim coach who I've talked to you about before, named Jimmy Petruzzello, who would say that if you did not swim so hard in practice that you threw up, you hadn't swam hard enough in practice. 
He would say to you, I would be proud to leap into the water and to pull your body out and to bring you to your parents because you swam so hard that you had no energy left with which to reach the end of, of the lane. You know, he said, I will jump in and rescue you if you swim all of your energy out. He said, I will hand your body to your parents and say, he, he swam hard. And he would scream at us while we were swimming in practice. He'd be like, swim! You know, and you'd take a breath out of the side of your mouth, like this, you know. You breathe this way, you breathe that way. He would get in, within your line of vision and he would scream at you, harder! swim, you know, and, and we'd leave with this complex, like, why does he hate me, you know? Um, I met him years later. I didn't know this as a kid, but the guy was like five feet tall. <laughs> but I was like three feet tall, and so I didn't know. I met him as a teenager, and I was six foot two at that point, and I said, you were my swim coach when I was little, and he said, was I nice? And he looked up at me, and he was like, sorry, you know? He knew he wasn't nice. What is his purpose in bringing all of this pain upon his swimmers, though? Is it to punish, or is it to shape the character, to guide the heart and the mind in the way in which it should go? Think about parental discipline. If you don't have children yet, none of this will apply to you, and you'll think, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about, or maybe... Maybe you will, but you will learn. The behavior of earthly fathers, the behavior of parents in the discipline of their children should mirror the behavior of the heavenly Father. Proverbs 23.14 speaks about punitive discipline in the life of a child. Think about this relationship from the child to the father from the heavenly father to the child. Think about this. Proverbs 23, 14 says, If you strike him with the rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. What the writer is saying here is that if you administer a spanking to your child, you know, let's not talk rods here. Rods are big, heavy things. And, you know, maybe that's what they use back in the Proverbs. Maybe use a spatula or a spoon or you know, you use your hand, yes, which is attached, you know. God put padded special places on the bottoms of children that they might receive corrective discipline. We're not talking about beating them here, you know. We're talking about a little corrective smack. What is the purpose? Is it to punish for wrong done, or is it to point them in the opposite direction? The purpose, God says, of discipline is to save the soul from hell. And so he has put Jonah in this situation because of Jonah's incorrect character. And so his goal and his desire is to save him by bringing discipline upon him. Ask yourself this question. I'll tell you, I, I fall into this category so many times, and I know many of you do, because believe me, this is one of the number one things I get asked questions about as a pastor. Is God's character to smash us like bugs or to continually punish us for sins which we committed long ago? Is his character that, that we messed up when we were 14 or 18 or 22 or 33 and now 10, 15, 20 years later, we are still reaping the consequences of that sin? Is it God punishing us? The answer is overwhelmingly no. 1 John 1.9 says if we confess 
our sins. He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Sin confessed. Sin repented of. Is met with forgiveness and fellowship. But sometimes our sins create rifts with people that cannot be healed which may affect the way that we feel about our relationship with God. Someone who has come to a saving knowledge of Christ and who has received his, the, the benefits of his death upon the cross, who is serving out a life sentence, may never get out of jail. And they may feel like God has not delivered them. But that would be wrong. There may be circumstances that create rifts which can never be healed. You may sin against someone and they may be done with you and you never recover that relationship. That is not the judgment of God upon your life. Don't believe that it is. Forgiveness and fellowship don't erase the fact that sometimes we reap a bitter harvest from our circumstances. You may get caught doing something wrong. You may get fined. You may gossip to someone in the heat of the moment and then repent of ever saying that and forget about it. And someone may repeat that in five weeks or five years or 15 years and it will cause damage. There are times where our sin brings bitter fruit back into our life. This is a good reason to strive to live a godly life because the Bible says what we sow, we reap. We should not plant pumpkins and expect to harvest apples. Life doesn't work that way. If we sow sin, sin will come back to haunt us. And that is not necessarily the judgment of God upon our lives. Forgiveness and fellowship comes when we confess our sins. Finally, but sometimes... We go through circumstances that are no fault of our own. That come upon us because of others' sin or because of God's shaping will for our lives. And if you want to know more about his shaping will for your life, I, I encourage you to study Hebrews 12, verses 3 through 17. It's probably the best passage in the Bible on God's loving, corrective discipline in our lives. Is God's character to smash us like bugs or punish us forever for sins long ago committed? The answer is no. Is his character instead to bring difficulty and corrective trial into our lives to shape our character so that we're quiet before him, so that we live in fellowship with him, acknowledging that we should be ready and willing to serve, to honor him, to love him, rather than honoring and loving our desires for pleasure and personal peace? The answer is yes. He delights in us as father, and he longs to shape our character. And that's exactly what he's doing here with Jonah, bringing a trial into his life to shape his character. Zephaniah 3.17 is a verse that, quite honestly, I've not spent much time looking at at all. I think part of the reason is because I've just I've had a hard time believing that God is like this because people just don't seem to be like this for me. Thank God God is not people. 
Zephaniah 3.17 says, The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Is that what you believe that the character of God is like towards you? That he rejoices over your life? That he rejoices over your character? That he enjoys who you are? That is God's character. And that's his purpose in putting Jonah in this situation, a situation which Jonah has also put himself in. He also reveals his character here in the way that he intervenes for Jonah. I find God's behavior in Jonah's poem delightful and surprising. God is a rescuer. I cannot remember the name of a particular man. But I can remember being there at the Cranford Pool in the summer. My friend John Mark was on the, the, the very outskirts of the, the, the swimming pool. If you know anything about the way lane assignments work, the slower guys get the lanes that are further out and, and the faster guys get to go in the middle and they dive in and they, they really paddle and swim and they leave a wake. You know, and other guys are left behind and they're swimming and they're bobbing around in their wake. You know, generally, when you pay attention to a race, you pay attention to the fastest guys. That's where the, the competition is. And you're not paying attention to the slower guys. John Mark goes in for his turn and goes to push off. And I think the only people watching him were his mom and his dad. And they started screaming because he didn't come up. He didn't come up from the water. He just kind of sat there. And while other people just kind of sat around and watched and, you know, horror, I think, stunned. I don't know who this man was, but he was just in the water. I mean, he leaped over lane guides, jumping long, jumping deep into the pool, and he pulls this boy up. What is there to do in a moment like that except delight in the character of a man who doesn't care? He's not going to take the time to daintily get into the water, you know, to, to make sure that, that he's not carrying anything that might get damaged if it's wet. This is day and age before cell phones, so he wasn't worried about that. But he just ran and jumped in, no dignity, because someone needed to be saved. And he was fine. I don't know what happened to him. He just wasn't coming up. But this man leaped in. And we just all, I could, I, I don't, actually, I don't even know what other people thought. I just remember my heart thinking that is a hero. That is a man that we can celebrate. Look at what Jonah says in verse 2 here. He says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. And he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol, I cried, and you heard my voice. Verse 4, Jonah laments, he says, I am driven away from your sight. I deserve the punishment that's coming upon me, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The bars of the pit 
closed upon me forever, yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God. He celebrates God's rescue of him. And though we are desperately wicked, irreparably sick, this is the great truth of the gospel that though we deserve no mercy, though we only deserve judgment and punishment and sentencing and death and eternal separation from God, his character is to delight in the rescue of those who call out for mercy. God shows mercy and kindness to sinners who rebel and resist. He saves and he adopts. He calls us his children. That is such good news. Because if you're anything like me, and you've got closets of shame in your life, things that you hope no one ever finds out about. I'll tell you, when Facebook came out, and the opportunity for people to share videos and pictures, I was horrified at the possibility that somebody might tag some photo that was taken of me that I have no idea when it was. Because there are things that God has rescued me from that I don't deserve rescue from. And I'll tell you this truth because you're some of my favorite people in the whole world. You don't deserve rescue either. None of us do. God would be just to take every single human being ever created and to throw them all away forever. And not one iota of his righteousness would diminish. Because he is perfectly holy and we are not. But he delights to rescue those who come to him. And so here's the third thing which we find in this text, which is true of our experience. Jonah's and our primary and necessary response towards the rescuing heart of God the Father is repentance. To repent is our primary task in life. To come before God and to say, we hate and forsake our sins. We hate the wrong that we have done. Will you rescue us? Now, I want to I just caution you not to create a kind of Christianity, an, an idolatrous Christianity, or an idolatrous path to salvation that does not involve sin, or does not involve repentance, or does not involve the rescuing God who rescues from sin. Because look at Jonah's his caution in verse 8. He says, those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast Love. What he's saying is that those who refuse to turn away from their wickedness, who refuse to acknowledge that they have done things which offend God, that they've, that they've not done things which please God, which God delights in, they refuse to say, that is wrong and this is right. They cut themselves off from the hope of receiving the love and the mercy of God. Those who pay regard to vain idols, forsake their steadfast, their hope of steadfast love. You know, a couple of guys and I were singing in the lobby this morning, not seriously, we weren't making a serious effort at singing, but we were, we were kind of singing along to Whitney Houston's great anthem of the 1980s, that the greatest love of all is to be found in ourselves. That is where human actualization comes from. If we, just, if we would just find positive emotions within us, we would know how good we are, and that would lead us to actualization. That is the worst thing that we could do. 
to rewrite the truths of our faith in favor of something which reduces the offense to ourselves. Don't seek repentance primarily to improve your state in life. Don't, have you ever done this? You kind of, you've got this pattern of sin in your life and you've got something big coming, a job interview or a test or, um, or, or you, you really want her to say yes. And you're like, oh, I repent of that sin because maybe then that will improve my amount of points in God's favor and he will bless me. Don't do that. That's, that's, that's pursuing God as, as therapy. And it, it makes a mockery of the offer of God's grace. Romans 2.4, we sang it already this morning. It is biblical what, what we sang in that, in that one song that, that God's love is better than life. Look at verse, verse 4 of Romans chapter 2. Do you presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. God's kindness toward us, good things that we enjoy in life, blessings, freedom, lack of punishment should never be interpreted as an opportunity to continue on in sin or to seek a shallow kind of repentance. Repentance should be like this. It starts by saying, all that I have done, all that I've pursued on my own is wrong. And I'm going to make a break with that and turn towards God. And as, as things draw us off course, as, as lust or pride or selfishness or jealousy tends to turn us off from following God, we say, no, 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 I repent of that. I throw that away. And we serve God in, in fullness and holiness. Don't just seek a temporary kind of, of repentance which is designed to improve your, your lot in life. Because Romans 2.5 says, because of your hard and impenitent hearts, hearts that aren't set on repentance, we're storing up wrath for ourselves on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. We should seek clean accounts with God. One of the things I, I love about some of my brothers and sisters here is that they are truly sin haters in their own life. They hate their sin, and they're continually repenting of it, and they want to know, if you see it in me, please point it out to me that I might repent of it, because we all have blind spots. I got about another page, but I'm just going to finish up. What should be our response? Repentance and gratitude. Verse 9, Jonah says, But with the voice of thanksgiving will I sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. God is gracious and merciful to us. He delights in saving. He doesn't, he takes sin seriously and so he erases it. But there is no sin so serious that Christ did not pay for it. And you can come to him with whatever you have, whatever your burden, whatever your junk, Whatever way in which you've gone astray, you can lay it at the foot of the cross and know that it has been paid for finally and that you can be righteous in the sight of God and that he truly, really, honestly loves you. If you are in Christ, let me just close up by exhorting you here. We have been delivered with a great deliverance. Salvation is from the Lord. 
delight in that. Be thankful to him for it. And as you see sin enter into your life, repent of it and focus your eyes on your salvation because God is good. He is mighty to save. For earnest believers, avoid temporary and self-seeking repentance. This is just a preview of chapters 3 and 4. This is Jonah's finest moment. But it is only a moment. Because chapter 3 and 4 are coming. We're going to see that Jonah's repentance is only temporary. And finally, if you're not yet a believer, if you don't own what Jesus did on the cross for yourself, let me just encourage you. God is merciful and kind. He desires to plunge into our rescue. And all we need to do is acknowledge our sin, call to him for rescue, and he will give it to us. Would you repent and believe and receive his grace? All you have to do is trust, and it's yours. Let's close in prayer. Father, we come.